Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The United States Supreme Court looks a lot different today than it did just a decade ago, and that's deliberate. A strong rightward push has reshaped justice at the highest levels. Joan Biskupic has covered the court for more than two decades, has a new book out about the historic change at the court. She joins us to talk about it and about the conflict of interest scandal engulfing Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm always glad that you've decided to join us today. There is an awful lot going on at the U.S. Supreme Court these days. It's not just the rightward shift that we've seen in recent years, but also a growing scandal of sorts around Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who has been exposed as being awfully close to a very powerful and prominent Republican donor. I wanted to talk about the court today and talk about a number of different things with the court. But first, I want to set the stage just a little bit for what's going on. Of course, throughout his presidency, Donald Trump significantly transformed the court, appointing three really staunch conservative justices and creating a 6-3 conservative majority on the bench, a much larger majority than conservatives have had in recent decades. And these justices have wasted no time providing conservatives with pretty major wins, including the removal of the constitutional protection that women possess to have an abortion in America for almost 50 years. That overturning of Roe v. Wade has been followed by a three-decade low in public opinion about the court since that ruling. And there are, of course, these other recent revelations about Justice Clarence Thomas and his failure to disclose gifts he received from this billionaire conservative donor for several years. That is not going to help with public opinion, of course, uh, of the court. It is also something that it's unclear what the consequences could or should be. But how do we get to this point where the court has moved so far to the right and has become this kind of lightning rod for public opinion? It is the only branch of government that both receives lifetime appointments and is not directly elected by the people. So what does all of this mean for the future of this still very powerful institution? And what can the public do, if anything, to make sure that there are more checks on the Supreme Court's power. A little later in the show, we are going to be joined by Richard Painter. He's a law professor at the University of Minnesota Law School and former chief White House House ethics lawyer who uh, served the George W. Bush administration. He's going to talk about these recent stories about Clarence Thomas and his potential ethics violations. But first, I'm joined by CNN legal analyst Joan Biskupic, who recently wrote a book called Nine Black Robes, Inside the Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. I should also note that uh, Joan was a colleague of mine of sorts. Uh, when I covered the Supreme Court in the mid-2000s, she was the legal analyst for USA Today and Gannett, and uh, I was the court uh, reporter for Knight Ritter. Joan, it is really great to have you here on Detroit Today. 
Thanks, Stephen. And as a native of Chicago, I was glad to hear the Detroit weather. Snowy today, <laughs> 80s tomorrow. Right. <laughs> it yeah. takes me right back to the upper Midwest. That's right. Anyway, if you, if you don't like the weather, you. just wait an hour. <laughs> That's right. Right, right, right. Um, it's great to have you here. Uh, so first, I want to talk, uh, of course, about this book that you have out, Nine Black Robes, how inside the Supreme Court's drive to the right and its historic consequences. Uh, I, I want to go back a little to a time, the time when uh, when Chief Justice Roberts was uh, being confirmed by the Senate, and there were these great concerns about the court and its direction uh, back then, and the things that he said about the kind of Chief Justice he would be, and the way he saw the court and the role uh, of the court. I think about that frequently these days because it seems like it was forever ago uh, in terms of eras of of the court. This is an entirely different court, it seems, than the court that Roberts, who is himself a conservative and was appointed because he was a conservative, um, it just is very different than what he was talking about and from what I think uh, we learned of him during those hearings, uh, the way that he saw his job and the job of the justices. Uh, so much so, Stephen. You, I think some people in our audience might recall him talking about the role of a justice is like being an umpire. Just, mm-hmm. you know, uh, nobody ever came to the a game to see the umpire. They're just calling balls and strikes. They're not actually taking an, a real active role. But, you know, the court he joined had conservatives more like, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy. Mm-hmm. They were they were people who were appointed by Republican presidents who were easily tagged with the label conservative, but were much more centrist and much less predictable than the conservatives we have today. Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy both approved of reproductive rights. They both voted to uphold Roe v. Wade, saying that they, if they had been on the court in 1973, they might not have voted for Roe v. Wade, given that they might not have thought that that was a right in the Constitution. But it was such ingrained in American uh, law that they weren't going to disturb it. They decided to uphold it. Flash forward to the conservatives now, including the three appointees of Donald Trump, who just voted in the summer to end constitutional protection for abortion. And as a reminder of how there's this whole new politically charged atmosphere around the Supreme Court, Donald Trump, when he was running for election in 2016, vowed to appoint only individuals who would vote against Roe v. Wade, and that's what happened. These three justices combined with Justice Clarence Thomas, who I know you want to talk about, mm-hmm. and Justice Samuel Alito, who uh, wrote the opinion overturning Roe, have a, um, as I said, a certain kind of consistency and unyielding nature, and frankly, a sense of urgency to move the court more to the right. Whereas, let's take, for example, Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy, and even Justice Stevens and Justice Souter, both of whom also were on the court that John Roberts joined. Those are two other Republican appointees. They were always searching for more of a middle centrist route, even though Stephen, Justice Stevens and Souter did end up more, more to the left. So a very different kind of court in terms of what, how it defines conservatism. It's a more active conservatism, mm-hmm. certainly. And also in terms of one other thing I'll add, they are all so much younger. If you think of the relatively young ages of the Trump appointees Mm -hmm. and the fact that we just don't expect any retirements in the near future, this court that we have today, Stephen, is the court of our future. Yeah. And and it's not just abortion, of course, that uh, we're seeing uh, the court take uh, new kinds of of actions on. Spend a little time telling our listeners, though, about the things, the other things that they have done and the other things that maybe – in the crosshairs for uh, for the supermajority that that clearly wants to really rewrite, I guess, uh, the, the the jurisprudence that uh, that lower courts adhere to on on a number of issues. Sure, and uh, my book documents uh, the obliteration of voting rights, mm-hmm. how they've reined in government regulatory power over the environment and public health, for example, and further blurred the separation of church and state. 
And then just looking forward, uh, there, there are two cases testing affirmative action on campus that are before the justices right now, one from Harvard and one from the University of North Carolina. And I'll tell you, for a lot of your listeners, remember that Michigan was the scene of uh, a really important yep. ruling in 2003 uh, that we call it, it, the Grutter-Bollinger case that allowed very cautious use of uh, race as one consideration in you know the screening of applicant applicants for campus diversity and that ruling from 2003 based at the university of michigan case uh reaffirmed the principle of the 1978 Bakke ruling that said schools cannot use quotas to when they're uh, screening for students, but they can take into consideration an applicant's race for a diverse student body. And right now, the justices are writing that decision, writing those decisions in that pair of cases. They heard arguments late in 2022, and I expect that by, by June. There's also another case that could further roll back uh, the reach of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and we constantly have cases now coming up involving government regulatory power and most probably uh on the minds of of the people in your audience who are closely following the court in in the next day we will hear a preliminary ruling from a uh, preliminary order from the justices on the medication abortion controversy mm -hmm. it will be the first tape case they're taking up uh since dobbs uh, which was the one that reversed roe and one last thing I just want to remind everyone of it. At the start of my book, I use a line from the dissenters in that Dobbs mm -hmm. decision that I think plays to the question you just asked me. And what they said was, no one should be confident that this majority has done with its work. And as I say, there is a, there is a very strong push, uh, much stronger than John Roberts might have ever imagined back in 2005 when he was confirmed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I want to go back to Roberts for a second. I mean, he is the chief justice and and I think a lot of people think that means he's the boss of, of the court uh, and of the other justices. And, and it's, of course, not quite that clear cut. Um, but he is someone who uh, who sets a tone of sorts for uh, the court and its uh, and its leadership, and again, when he was being confirmed, he spoke so eloquently about the things that that he holds dear and the things that he respects about the third branch and and what it should do. I wonder what role that you see him playing in this new court. There's also, of course, uh, the the trouble that he has or has had. Uh, with the leaking of uh, the Dobbs uh, opinion before uh, before it was handed down by the court, something that that we never see at the at the Supreme Court. So it does seem like a place that is challenging his notions of the way it should work. But I guess I wonder what you make of how he might respond to that, or or what he might even be thinking uh, as all of this unfolds. Yeah, around. he's uh, John Roberts is someone who I have known since just about his very first argument before the court when he was a, a star appellate advocate. He argued for the first time uh, back in January 1981, and that was just about the time I was beginning to cover the court full time. And then you probably remember at the Washington Post, I spent the 90s there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have long watched John Roberts, and then my previous book to this one was specifically on him, The Chief. And this book uh, that, you know, Nine Black Robes really looks at what has happened to his leadership and how a man who was known to be so strategic, tactical, and winning as he was, mm -hmm. is now on the defensive. He's, uh, first of all, he's fighting uh, dissension on his right wing on things like off-bench behavior and ethics. He's, he's wanted to have a formal code of ethics, uh, but they uh, that has been a problem. But on the cases, we saw how he wanted more of a compromise ruling out of the Dobbs abortion case. He mm -hmm. was willing to uphold Mississippi's ban on abortion at 15 weeks, but didn't want the court to go further with totally overturning Roe. But as much as he's got a weaker hand now, and I would say that for sure, I would say that there's John Roberts is experiencing a lot of frustration. I want to point out where he is winning and where he still controls. And one area is on racial remedies. He, I, I, I don't know if he is writing the opinion in the, the Harvard and University of North Carolina cases, but that's 
that has been one area that has been very important to him mm -hmm. to to stop, as he says, discriminate, discriminating on the basis of race, even for benefits for people. Um, and the same thing with religious rights. He has voted for uh, greater protections for religious conservatives and, and also regulatory authority. So he he actually is prevailing more and more, and he still has uh, more in those areas. Not again, not on some cult culture war areas. He not only lost uh, on abortion rights, but he also famously lost in 2005 mm -hmm. when the justices for the first time declared a uh, right to same-sex marriage. He used his first and only dissent from the bench uh, to protest that ruling. So he's he's got a bit of a mixed record, but just think of it this way. Uh, you're right. You know, as, as a kid would say, you know, you're not the boss of me. He's not the <laughs> boss of them. He's not the boss of them. But he still has the assignment power when he is in the majority. And I will I can see him voting more on the right side of the court just so he can keep the majorities mm -hmm. and and have the power of assignment, which is a really uh you can then like help shape what the court says, how far it goes in a ruling. He still has the power of assignment there, and he has some some authority in the operating of the court. But you know, he can't get around the fact that it takes nine votes to decide a case, and he, uh, you know, the the three on the left might help him to try to moderate things, but he still needs a fifth vote. And then in in the operations of the court, as we're seeing with these ethical questions, he can't just say. Uh, we'll get a we'll get a five four or six three vote on that. He wants unanimity. You have to have unanimity to say all of us will abide by these kinds of protocols and practices. Yeah, uh, I'm talking with Joan Biskupic. She is a full time uh, CNN legal analyst and author. Her new book is called Nine Black Robes: Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. We're talking about what's going on at the court, both in terms of the cases that the justices are hearing and ruling on, but also this kind of background story uh, right now about ethics that has unfolded around Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, if you want to join us on the phones, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is always the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work into the conversation. Joan, I know you do have to run uh, pretty quickly, but uh, I, I, want, I do want to get your take on what we're seeing in these stories about Justice Thomas. You know, I, I was flabbergasted by them. Uh, you know, I, I, I know so many judges and have known so many judges for such a long time. I can't imagine a judge who would indulge in this kind of behavior quite the way Thomas did, and then, of course, not report it. But but I'm really curious uh, about your response to it. Yeah, I think I think Clarence Thomas does need to speak up one way or another. He did answer on the lavish trips, saying he didn't think he needed to record those. But we also now have you know very real question about this real estate deal where Har Harlan Crow uh, bought pieces of property that the Thomas family owed, uh, owned. And I, I, I do think that at a time when the Supreme Court is under such scrutiny for what it does from the bench, that these off-bench activities certainly also diminish the confidence that people have in the court. But as you know, and as John Roberts even says, there is really only one way to get rid of a justice or to punish a justice in any real effective way, and that is through the impeachment and conviction process that we had that we have for the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And no justice has ever been removed from office that way. So, you know, I have covered so many of these these situations where a justice's ethics have been called into question. This this one involving his trips that uh, ProPublica documented on Harlan Crow's, you know, private jet and super yacht to really wonderful places across <laughs> the globe just gets everybody's attention more than these other instances. But frankly, Stephen, I have seen them fade. And I think that might be what some of the members of the court are are hoping for, is that this just fades. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I do have to run because the court yeah. is hearing cases this morning right at 10. But right. thank you so much <laughs> for your time. I enjoyed it. No, thank you. Uh, it's great to hear from you. And uh, congratulations on the book. Uh, thanks so much to Joan Biskupic for, for being here with us. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, take a little deeper look into the ethics troubles that uh, were at their head at the, at the court. Uh, Richard Painter, a law professor at the University of Minnesota. 
Minnesota Law School and former Chief White House ethics lawyer during the George W. Bush administration is going to join us. Also want to get going with you on the phones and on Twitter. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can go to Twitter and hashtag us as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. You just heard Joan Biskupic, uh, the legal analyst for CNN, talk about the fact that she believes that because there aren't really a lot of consequences for uh, Supreme Court justices who go beyond the scope of ethical behavior that she thinks the recent scandal surrounding Justice Clarence Thomas might very well just fade. Is that what's going to happen? Or might this inspire a real look at the ethics that govern the third branch of government in Washington and maybe inspire some change? That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And we've got another voice uh, to add to the conversation. Richard Painter is a law professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. He also was the chief White House ethics lawyer during the George W. Bush administration. Uh, Richard, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So I, I want to start with what Joan Biskupic was just saying, uh, this idea that uh, that there isn't much that can be done about ethical breaches in, uh, in judicial behavior and that maybe this will just go away. And in fact, she said that this may be what the justices are counting on, that uh, there won't be uh, further inquiry or or pressure on uh, on Congress uh, to to maybe change that. I wonder what you make of uh, of that assessment of of the situation and the likelihood uh, of change. Well, perhaps it will fade away, uh, but uh, it need not. And we've been here before. It was fifty four years ago in uh, nineteen sixty nine mm-hmm. uh, when Justice A. Fortas. Uh, who had been nominated by uh, previously by Pre- President Johnson to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, but 1969, during the Nixon administration, A. Fortas uh, was exposed for having taken money from Louis Wolfson, a financier, uh, who um, had uh, some serious legal difficulties. And uh, Fortas actually returned the money as soon as uh, Louis Wolfson was indicted. Uh, Justice Fortas did not participate in any case involving Louis Wolfson. It was a consulting contract, um, and even though he'd returned the money, had no conflict of interest, uh, he was forced off the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not impeached, uh, but uh, both Republicans and Democrats in Congress made it clear that impeachment might very well be an option, and Chief Justice Earl Warren uh, put a pressure on A. Fortas to resign. Uh, the Democrats uh, did not rally to his defense, uh, even though they knew that uh, President Nixon would get an additional appointment on the court. Mm-hmm. And Nixon indeed tried to put an arch-conservative on that seat and failed because the Senate wouldn't support him, and Justice Blackman took the seat instead. But uh, the point is that the court previously has dealt with this and has been willing to stand up uh, for ethical principles. And I'd have to say that what Justice Fortas did, well, it was um, very, very concerning, uh, was not as serious as what we're confronting here. Mm. Uh, this is a, a longstanding relationship with a billionaire, with a failure to report uh, these gifts and other transactions uh, pursuant to the Ethics and Government Act of 1978. Uh, Justice Fortas was before the Ethics and Government Act. We tolerated less transparency on the court than uh, than we supposedly do now uh, in the post-Watergate era. Uh, The law is clear, but we're not enforcing the law. And the the justices are going to interpret the law for the rest of us. Uh, I would think that they could themselves comply with the law 
and they're not mm-hmm. if they tolerate this among their colleagues. So, so I want to go back to something you just uh, said, the, the comparison between what Abe Fortas did and what uh, Clarence Thomas is, is now being questioned about. I, I, I go through the things that you see as, as problematic here, because I'm not sure that most people, uh, when they think of the Supreme Court, understand the kinds of distance that uh, members of the, of the judiciary are expected to keep from, from uh, big donors. Uh, and I think also there's a real distinction between this question about taking uh, trips on a yacht or on a plane and the real estate transactions that were that were uh, revealed last week, uh, uh, they they fit into different kinds of ethical categories. I think. Well, they do. Uh, but the common theme here was the requirement to disclose a clear legal requirement in the Ethics and Government Act of 1978, and after the Nixon era. After the episode with Justice Fortas, uh, Congress changed the law, and they made it clear that these types of gifts, transactions, must be reported. And then uh, there can be scrutiny as to what is allowed and what is not allowed and what types of conflicts of interest arise. But as uh, Justice Louis Brandeis said, uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And Congress chose a disclosure regime uh, in 1978 in the Ethics and Government Act for all three branches of government. Members of Congress must file these reports. The President of the United States must file these reports. I filed disclosure reports when I was in the uh, White House, and the senior White House staff filed those as well, and the judiciary. Uh, And uh, the law is a law. It must be complied with. And I I see that it is not in both the, with respect to both the gifts of jet travel and yachts and also the real estate transactions, they needed to be disclosed, and they weren't. Hmm. I'm talking with Richard Painter. He's a former White House ethics lawyer, chief White House ethics lawyer during the administration of George W. Bush. Uh, he's a law professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. We're talking about uh, the questions that have been raised about Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas and his close association with a billionaire Republican donor. Uh, those stories in ProPublica over the last couple of weeks really raise questions about not just the behavior that justices are expected to uh, adhere to, but also what happens when they don't. What are the consequences? What could they be? Uh, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call and let us know Uh, what you think about Justice Thomas. Do you think he has violated ethics rules by failing to report these free expensive trips he received uh, or the property that uh, he sold to uh, a Republican donor? What would you like to see change, perhaps, uh, about the way in which we handle these things in this country? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation that way. Let's start today with Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the show. It's amazing how a man who calls himself uh, an originalist and a textualist can't read text. (laughs) I wanted to make a historical comment. Mm -hmm. People in the 20... 30s and 40s, will be confronted with a court that is analogous to the court Franklin Roosevelt dealt with in the 1930s. He had judges who were from the Victorian, late Victorian and Edwardian era, who were out of step with the changes that had taken place in the country. We're going to go through that again with a bunch of judges educated in the 20th century who may not be able to adapt to the changes of the early 21st century. Hmm. Uh, I wonder whether your guest has any comments on either the textualist issue or the historic issue. Yeah, Ed, I really appreciate the call and the great questions. Uh, Richard Painter, go ahead. Well, yes, a lot of the originalist interpretation of the Constitution isn't originalist at all. It's a substitution of the views of some law and economics scholar from the University of Chicago or some uh, unitary executive theorist uh, who supports an expansive presidential power 
uh, its substitution of these uh, novel academic theories for the intent of the framers. Uh, and there's been too little pushback on that, particularly when progressives uh, seem to want to distance themselves from the framers because of the uh, very tragic and, and immoral decisions were made about slavery. Mm-hmm. But there are many things the framers got right, and uh, abandoning the intent of the framers' interpretation of the Constitution to the uh, academic theorists of the, of the right is a very, very bad idea, and that's what we're seeing in some of this jurisprudence. I, I would have to say that uh, for a number of reasons, I'd, I'd probably take the Supreme Court of the 1930s over, over this one. Um, <laughs> Uh, although I, I think that uh, President Roosevelt's response uh, uh, to that was certainly uh, within uh, what the Constitution permits, which if the president has the votes in Congress to expand the court, the president can do that uh, uh, with the support of the House and, and the Senate. Uh, we're not in a position where that can be done right now, uh, but um, that may, may come in the future. Right now, we need to focus on the ethics and the lack of ethics which I think is uh, we have a serious problem Mm -hmm. uh, uh, on the Supreme Court and in some of our other courts with respect to judicial ethics. Lifetime tenure uh, should not come with uh, a lack of accountability uh, to the country and to the public. And and so Justice Thomas says one of the things he says is that he was advised by other justices that accepting these gifts was not a, a rules violation. And that may concern me at least as much as the fact that, that he did it, if, if that's true, that other justices said, hey, don't worry about it. Uh, it seems that we might have a much bigger problem uh, with, with, with justices and their, and their behavior. But, but again, because it's self-policing, uh, it suggests that, that there is very little that might ultimately be done. I mean, where would the pressure come from, for, if not within the court, for them to do this differently? Well, this is a problem. It's, it's the phenomenon of colleagues covering for colleagues. We see it in police departments uh, where officers will ignore the uh, brutality and racial profiling by other officers. We see it in academic departments. Uh, there's a lawsuit pending now against the University of Michigan Law School about really kinky emails sent to a professor by a, a dean. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone, all the faculty looks the other way. Uh, and now we see this at the Supreme Court of the United States. Colleagues covering for colleagues. It's very, very uh, corrosive uh, for ethics uh, and for democracy. And once again, if you combine it with lifetime tenure, whether for a university professor or even worse, a Supreme Court justice, uh, we have lack of accountability and people who can serve for decades in their positions uh, interpreting the law for the rest of us but not following the law. A very, very bad situation. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking with Richard Painter, University of Minnesota law professor about judicial ethics. I also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Give us a call. Let us know what you make of Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, violating ethics rules by failing to report free expensive trips he received and not reporting uh, property transactions with a very prominent Republican donor. Uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. for a member of our federal judiciary, a Supreme Court justice, to be friends with a powerful Republican donor, to take gifts from that donor and not report them. 
That's what we're talking about here on Detroit Today. Uh, I'm Stephen Henderson, and always glad that you have joined. Our guest is Richard Painter. He is a former chief White House ethics lawyer during the administration of George W. Bush, also is now a law professor at the University of Minnesota Law School, we're talking about the stories about Justice uh, Clarence Thomas and his relationship with a prominent Republican donor. Uh, the things that he did, are they okay? The lack of reporting of those things. Is that okay? And if not, how do you make sure that he does things differently? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. If you want to join the conversation, that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Richard, uh, I want to talk about Chief Justice John Roberts and the role that you see him playing here. You talked earlier about uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren and how he went to Justice Abe Fortas when he was caught in uh, an ethical quagmire and convinced him to to lead to leave the court. Um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, of course, is very different <laughs> than Chief Justice Warren. Uh, the court is a very different place now than it was in the late 1960s. But what what do you imagine is the role Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, should be playing right now in dealing with this ethical breach? Well, the first step is a full investigation of what happened. And Chief Justice Roberts ordered an investigation of the leak of the abortion opinion. Uh, and uh, that investigation lasted for months. Uh, I think that that was the right thing to do. Uh, there should not be leaks from the court. But this is a much more serious situation than a leak of an opinion uh, a month or two before the opinion is released. Uh, this was an actual violation of the Ethics of Government Act of 1978. Um, it certainly appears to be based on the facts as I understand them. Uh, the Chief Justice should uh, have an investigation, uh, take a look at uh, all of these transactions. Uh, Justice Thomas should share his tax returns with the Chief Justice uh, so they can compare what was reported to the IRS uh, uh, with respect to particular real estate transaction with the disclosure reports uh, and uh, also uh, make a determination as to whether the law was violated. If the law was violated, um, which it appears to have been. The next question is whether it was done intentionally or in, in negligently. Uh, in either case, there's serious questions as to whether Justice Thomas should continue to serve on the court if he can't uh, comply with the law uh, himself. If it was intentional omission, uh, it's a much more serious situation because then that would be intentionally lying on, on a federal of filing, which could be a felony if, once again, you know you're lying and you lie, but we aren't there yet, um, and, and this needs to be investigated fully. I, I'd have to say that Justice Thomas's interpretation of the Ethics in Government Act is just flat out wrong. There is an exception for personal hospitality from a close friend, but that is limited to food, lodging, and entertainment, uh, staying at someone's house for the weekend, going to someone's house for dinner. Um, a, a concert at that person's house, not where they buy you tickets, um, that type of thing. It does not cover transportation. That is not in the exception for personal hospitality. So we don't have personal hospitality on someone's private jet or yacht that does not have to be disclosed. And I advise the White House staff on the Ethics and Government Act and the same thing. I don't care how close the personal friend is. If they fly you on their jet, or they take you on their yacht and transportation, that has not covered the exception. It must be disclosed. And then we have the conversation about whether you should have accepted the gift to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, and that didn't happen here. And, and I find that if the justice is going to interpret federal statutes in such a convoluted manner uh, when they apply to himself, I question whether he is uh, able to um, uh, interpret those statutes uh, and the United States Constitution in cases that are binding on the rest of the American people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I also think that it's worth at least pondering at this point the motivation for these kinds of gifts. I mean, Clarence Thomas says he is a friend of Harlan Crowe's. Harlan Crowe says he's a friend of, of Justice Thomas. But these outsized kinds of financial uh, 
dimensions of the relationship certainly must raise uh, the question about the the buying of influence. Uh, Harlan Crow is somebody who has real aims as it regards, uh, you know, the Supreme Court and the cases it hears and the the, the judgment that it renders. Uh, I, I wonder if you think this raises in some prosecutors' minds, perhaps, you know, a question about what, why uh, these gifts were, were given, why these deals were made, and whether there is some sort of expectation of a quid pro quo or, or perhaps an actual one. Well, this is a question I dealt with as well when I was in the White House with the White House staff and the cabinet members in the ethics briefings. Uh, there is a personal exception to personal friend exception to the gift rules allows you to accept certain gifts from personal friends, although they do need to be reported. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the points I made is that it's amazing uh, how as soon as you get a job in the White House, uh, all sorts of new personal friends <laughs> emerge out of nowhere. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, you, you can't go anywhere to a party or to church or anywhere. Everyone sort of wants to be your personal friend. And that, that needs to be uh, viewed with some skepticism about what the uh, objectives are. Uh, I, I was personally lobbied uh, by a lobbyist in the swimming pool at the Chevy Chase Club in, this, in, in Chevy Chase, Maryland, when I was in the White House. And I watched the same lobbyist lobbying the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, it, it's amazing what, what goes on in Washington and what friendships are all about. And imagine what happens if you get a lifetime appointment to the United States Supreme Court. How many personal friends or billionaires will emerge out of nowhere? Uh, this is very, very troubling. Uh, how to control it is is difficult, uh, a much more difficult question. But the one decision Congress made in 1978, the Ethics and Government Act, is that we must have transparency. The gifts must be reported, and that includes the private plane flights and the yacht trips. And, of course, the real estate transactions, uh, all of that needs to be reported. So at least we know what's going on. And parties with cases before the court know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, keep a check on SCOTUS and all elected officials by making a requirement that all of their on-duty meetings, briefings, and phone calls are recorded and posted Republic Legal Review. Accountability is needed. Obviously, an exemption should be made for classified material. Uh, that's not a terribly practical idea with regard to the way the co- the court operates, uh, uh, Richard. Uh, the, m- most of what the court does is in secret. But this idea of, of better transparency bumps up against uh, that in, in, in some cases. I, I wonder if you have concerns about that get into the, the the way in which the justices deliberate, given that there is this possibility of relationships with people like Harlan Crow that could be influencing, I suppose, uh, those those deliberations. It's a very serious problem. Finding the solution is is the difficulty. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, a lot of the uh, discussions here that influence the court are off-duty uh, mm-hmm. while lying on a yacht somewhere in the Caribbean, fully paid for by a billionaire. Uh, I'm not sure that the conversations between the justice and the billionaire are, are limited to uh, you know the latest sports scores. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, subject matter of, of pending cases might come up. We have no idea uh, what's going on in that yacht, what's being discussed why the billionaire is such a close friend of the justice, uh, and so forth. Uh, it's a very challenging situation. Uh, the least we could do is have the transparency rules so that everybody knows what's going on. Uh, and Justice Thomas apparently did disclose some travel back in the early 2000s and got some criticism for it, um, which is how the system's supposed to work, where they say, well, you're getting too close to that billionaire and so forth. So he just decided to stop disclosing, I guess. Uh, and that, that's very problematic. Uh, so, yes, we've got a serious problem. Don't know what we could do about it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily the on-duty communications uh, that are uh, taking place while they're in the courthouse or during the working day that are the biggest problem. It's what's going on on the weekends. 
uh, sitting on the yacht or, or wherever they are vacationing with the rich and famous uh, while ignoring the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to Susan in Huntington Woods. Susan, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, Hi. Can you hear me okay? Sure can. Go ahead. Okay, great. I, I formerly worked with the federal government in a far less, less influential position. <laughs> and one thing that still strikes me that I think the speaker right now is, is emphasizing is that there's no, you know, whether or not what the justice did was right or wrong, um, there's no question you're supposed to report these types of activities, even the appearance of some kind of conflict of interest is, is something to report, and you can go about your business, um, but as well, like, context matters as well. Um, you report these kinds of possible, com- you know, possible these activities, and context can change, um, and that also matters. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, I'm, I guess I'm just surprised that anyone would question you aren't supposed to report something like yeah. Like these uh, Susan, I'm glad you called because, uh, you know, as you say, even at much lower levels, uh, so to speak, of, of, of government, th- these are obvious rules and people observe them without, without much thought or, or question. And so, Richard, that kind of raises, uh, uh, the, I guess, suspicions about whether this was intentional or not. The idea that Justice Thomas did not know, for instance, that uh, these things were s- supposed to be reported or that some of the things he was doing were themselves um, beyond th- the bounds of ethical behavior themselves. Well, uh, yes, it's very, very troubling. The transparency is critical because once we know what's going on, at least part of what's going on, we'll never know what was discussed on the yacht. Uh, we can think about uh, what could be done about it. There also might be indirect social pressure put on the justice to recuse from certain cases and so forth, knowing that the relationship between himself and the billionaire is uh, somewhat at least in the public eye. Without transparency, we're helpless to, to deal with this. And that was the point of the Ethics in Government Act of, of 1978, one of the things that's really troubling is that Justice Thomas, without naming names, says he consulted his colleagues who said it's okay. And I, don't, I want to know who these colleagues are mm-hmm. um, and whether that actually happened. Uh, or is this just one more example of colleagues covering for colleagues, which, as I say, I've seen in academic departments with tenured professors. You see it in police forces, uh, colleagues covering for colleagues. But when we're talking about the Supreme Court of the United States and its enormous influence over our lives and interpretation of our constitution and statutes, uh, we, we really can't uh, have this uh, continue. Uh, the court is going to lose its uh, credibility very quickly with American people yeah. if it doesn't confront this problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Susan, really appreciate the call and that really valuable perspective. Let's go next to Robert in Detroit. Robert, what's on your mind? Hey, I um, think that the court lost its credibility a while ago. And Clarence Thomas is, is one of the people who came in under a cloud of unethical behavior. But there have been many others since then. I, I'd like to see the court, not progressive, not, not conservative, but just like Robert said, call the shots. And, and I think part of the problem is how they're selected to the Congress. I mean, we've seen, the American public has seen that these, these um, people up for um, nomination lie under oath. And, and then we get Citizens United that says, um, money is um, is speech, mm-hmm. so it's like, I, I, I would. How do we resolve this? I'd like to see uh, a larger court right now that that's a little bit more uh, neutral, and I'd like to see the Senate um, take their role more seriously mm. before they even get on the court. Uh, Robert, those are interesting observations and, and ideas, and I think there's a lot of the American public that uh, that agrees. Um, uh, Richard, uh, go ahead and, and respond to the idea that maybe part of the problem is the way that we select and vet the people who end up with these lifetime appointments. Well, it's a very partisan process, uh, it, and uh, it has nothing to do with uh, the merits, although I would say that the justices are certainly, most of them, you know, very well-versed in the law and very capable, very intelligent uh, but are the people who rise to that level 
uh, better lawyers, better judges than those who do not? Of course not. It's all politics, the selection process inside the White House in both Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, but um, the problem is that in the confirmation process, it's highly partisan. And what's amazing is that if uh, the uh, Congress wants to pass a bill through the Senate uh, to reform the health care system or anything that is by way of uh, the statute, uh, they need to get through two-thirds of the Senate. Uh, and two-thirds of the senators can block uh, the legislation, as uh, President Biden found out a year ago. Uh, but for the appointment of a justice of the Supreme Court, Apparently, a bare majority will do it, and Donald Trump put three justices on by a, by a bare majority. Uh, and other presidents, both Democratic and Republican, have put justices on the court by a bare majority of the Senate. And while I don't support the filibuster, uh, you know, I do think that if someone can't get the vote of 60 senators, mm-hmm. at least they probably should not be on the federal courts. We we don't need the the far left and the far right jostling for position uh, to put uh, uh, their favorite candidates on the court. But uh, we have to confront the fact that in both political parties, the, um, the, the political base would like to see people put on the courts who would squeak by a bare majority sure. of the United States Senate. Yeah. Uh, and so there is very little willingness in either political party to support a supermajority requirement and to say, well, you know, for interpreting the Constitution for a lifetime appointment, if you can't get 60 senators, um, you really shouldn't be one of the nine. Right. Uh, uh, and I think we should think seriously about whether whether that would be the better approach. Okay. Richard Painter, it was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow and we're going to sit down with Wayne County Health Director Dr. Abdul El-Sayed to discuss the state of health outcomes in Wayne County and what needs to happen to improve results in our area. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.